Hello, this is Cleo Pascal. Welcome to Chatham House's Strategic Perspectives on the Indo-Pacific podcast. In this series, we're talking about how different strategic communities in different countries look at what's going on in the Indo-Pacific. It's the 24th of September, 2019, and today we're in London, here at Chatham House, where we just held a brainstorming roundtable with UK strategic and policy experts on what they think might happen in the Indo-Pacific out to 2024. You're going to get a taste of it now when we talk to three really great experts. First up is Rear Admiral Neil Morissetti. He's an associate fellow here at Chatham House, and he's had a very distinguished career in the Royal Navy, where he was commander of UK Maritime Forces, commandant of the Joint Services Command and Staff College, and later on he went to the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, where he was the UK government's Climate and Energy Security Envoy, and then the Foreign Secretary's Special Representative for Climate Change, a very unique perspective on both the strategic and climate security environment in the Indo-Pacific. We also have Bill Hayton, who's also an associate fellow here at Chatham House. If his name is familiar, it's because he's been a journalist with the BBC since the 90s, and he wrote an Economist Book of the Year book called The South China Sea, The Struggle for Power in Asia. He's another great specialist on the region. We also have Verlay Nguyens, who's a research fellow at the Royal United Services Institute just down the road and is one of the top people on the Indo-Pacific strategic affairs here in London. So please settle in and get comfortable because we're heading off to the Indo-Pacific via London. My name is Rear Admiral Neil Morissetti. I'm an Associate Fellow at Chatham House and I'm also at University College London. We're looking at the Indo-Pacific and what perceptions are of strategic shifts out to 2024. How do you see the region changing over the next four or five years? Well, the Indo-Pacific region is probably one, I mean, it's about a third of the world. It's one of the more dynamic. It's got a young population, a, a, a number of countries. But it's also a region that, as well as having lots of opportunities, is particularly vulnerable, not least to the impact of a changing climate in the sense of both the onset of long-term trends, rising temperatures, rising sea levels, but also extreme weather events, hurricanes, typhoons. And that has a major bearing on the focus of many of the nations in the region. What has the U.S.-U.K. engagement in the region been? The U.K. has been engaged in the region for, for, for generations, but more recently it's been patchy. It, it's a long way away. People perhaps don't necessarily see why we should be engaged so far, although we have many Commonwealth partners out there, and Pacific Island Forum in Australia and in New Zealand. So a long history of working together, but more recently we've become a bit detached from the region. We have a security engagement through the Five Power Defence Agreement. We have an intelligence relationship as the Five Eyes, which from that region includes Australia and New Zealand, along with ourselves and then Canada and America. I think we haven't been there as much as we should have been recently. Do you have any specific concerns about the region going forward? Any negative inflection points that bother you? I have a concern about the consequences of a changing climate and the risks of instability in the region as people perhaps lose their livelihood because of rising sea levels or, or, or food because of increased acidity in the ocean or again the sea level and the salt water ingresses into the aquifers in, for example, in Vietnam. I also have a concern that with a young population, there needs to be opportunities and there needs to be the ability to see their place in the world and how they will contribute, but also who they'll be contributing with and looking to see who those partners are and who those partners are who are prepared to sustain their engagement in the, in the region. And perhaps that's another area where the UK could do more. 
Are there other areas where you think the UK could nudge away from the negative and towards the positive going forward? Yeah, I think we have a lot to offer. Education, both back here in the UK, but also in those countries. We have a lot on technology. We are doing a lot on climate change, and I think there's a lot we can offer there in the way of both technology and policy to help countries prepare and reduce the risks. Just because it's thousands and thousands of miles away doesn't mean that we don't need to worry about ensuring that it's a stable environment because at the end of the day, we're looking for global geopolitical stability and not just as an end state, but without that global stability, then we're not going to have domestic prosperity and well-being. So we as a country, along with other countries and our partners, whether they are traditional partners, perhaps in Europe or, or in America or elsewhere, or new partners need to work together to ensure that, that, that it's a stable and prosperous environment. And in doing so, we can benefit in the UK through, through trade and economic opportunities. I'm Bill Hayden. I'm an Associate Fellow with the Asia-Pacific Programme here at Chatham House, and I focus on South China Sea and Southeast Asia. South China Sea and Southeast Asia are part of the larger construct of the Indo-Pacific, and we've been seeing a lot of strategic shifts in the region. Do you have any sense of how things might go, what the trend lines are currently out to about 2024? Well, if we extrapolate where we've come from, I mean, it's interesting over the past decade, a series of real missteps by China has changed the strategic situation, I think, around the South China Sea and in Southeast Asia. I mean, if we think back to 2009, everything was going China's way after the Olympics and the size of the economy. Things were orienting in China's way. But then a series of missteps, particularly in the South China Sea, aggressive actions in terms of confronting other countries, oil survey vessels or, or building on coral reefs and things, that's really changed the perspective uh, that these countries have towards China. And I think the more assertive that China becomes, and I, I think it's going to become increasingly assertive over the next five years, the more that's going to have an opposite reaction, I think, in Southeast Asia. Even as those countries become more integrated with China in terms of trade and investment, they're still going to have that suspicion. And those countries are looking out for other countries, third parties, to help them maintain their independence and autonomy at a time when China's dominance of the region appears to become ever greater. You've seen that in an op in opening to the to the United States, but there's there's a role there for other countries, for, for so-called middle powers, including the UK, I think, to play a part in working with these countries to help them protect their resources, protect their independence and so forth, and, and simply to trade and be there and give these countries alternatives. Do you think there's a desire on the part of the UK to play that role in the region? I think so. I mean, where I've been involved in a number of roundtables involving you know, British officials, involving officials from other countries in you know, European approaches and so forth, I think there's a desire to, to get back in the game. I think there was a sort of sense that you know, there's a more sort of laissez-faire approach that maybe existed in the past sort of quarter century or so isn't good enough and that, and that governments have to drive a form of engagement. And I think that's partly been prompted by other governments, for example, Japan, the United States, prompting European states to, to take more of an interest. And also, I think, you know, the, just the new challenges, Brexit, obviously, is a, is a big one in terms of helping or encouraging states to realize that global engagement doesn't just happen. It has to be has to be led. Are there any negative inflection points that you're concerned about going forward? 
Yes, and the South China Sea obviously is a, is a key focus of that. I mean, various scenarios that are, that are conceivable in the next five years. I mean, it, it's widely assumed that, that China would like to build an artificial island on the Scarborough Shoal off the coast of the Philippines. And in the past, the United States has made clear that it would regard that as a, as a security threat. What are the chances of China taking action against, for example, Taiwanese interests in the context of something that happens in, in, in Taiwan's politics, particularly with an election coming up and, and what happens after that. I mean, the whole question of resources in the South China Sea is is an interesting one. At the moment, there are confrontations going on about oil and gas exploitation. Vietnam, Malaysia are coming under a lot of Chinese pressure. That might increase. But then what happens if countries start to move away from fossil fuels? Does that mean that things actually might decrease? But if they decrease, then that will have knock-on effects on, for example, the government revenues of Vietnam, Malaysia, Brunei, Indonesia, which are in some important ways dependent on that uh, fossil fuel income. Fisheries is, is is a critical issue for all the countries around the South China Sea. And, and if fish stocks decline calamitously, then that could have all kinds of other effects. And the current arrangement of the disputes in the South China Sea means that the key players just aren't talking to each other on managing fish stocks. And that's another big problem. Are there any things that could nudge it in a more positive direction? I think so. I mean, I think, let's take fish stocks. I mean, Indonesia has taken fairly strong action in trying to protect its fish stocks, and I think that's a good lesson for for other countries to to take notice of. I I sense a sort of... um, you know, my occasional interactions with you know, Chinese visitors, maybe a, a willingness to see that there have been missteps in the past and that possibly a dialing down of some of this pressure might might be appropriate. But the real problem, I think, is the, is the sense of entitlement, of ownership that China corporately has grown up with towards the South China Sea, the sense that it, it belongs to China. And obviously that's going to continue to bump up against the aspirations of the Southeast Asian countries and countries that see the South China Sea as a place that it should be part of the global commons rather than China's own backyard. Are you optimistic or negative about I'm optimistic in the sense that I think that the people who deal with these issues are generally smart people who are aware of the consequences and you know have no interest in seeing conflict. I'm pessimistic when I think about nationalist narratives that drive governments forward. And Edward Lutwak called it this great power autism when a country like China only sees things through the prism of its own interests and doesn't see the bigger picture. I could make a case that it's in China's wider strategic interests to reach compromise and to improve its relations with its neighbours. But I'm not sure how strongly those views can get through to the people actually making the decisions in Beijing. I'm Birla Lowens, a research fellow at RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute in London, where I am the Asia Studies Fellow, and I look chiefly at really all things Indo-Pacific, or, and particularly around maritime security. Looking at the Indo-Pacific out to about 2024, are there any strong trend lines that you think can help guide us? I mean, I think, of course, one real main strong trend line is currently at least great power competition that we seem to be finding ourselves in with the United States and China. I think tussling about models of development and engagement and influence across the Indo-Pacific, really. So this is one thing that I think a lot of countries are thinking about. But I think also in terms of the environment, there's clearly a lot of concerns, whether that be climate change or overfishing, which really plagues both the Indian Ocean region and the Pacific. 
Is there a role for the UK in the Indo-Pacific going forward? Absolutely. I mean, the UK is present in the Indo-Pacific, whether you look at the Pacific or the Indian Ocean, and of course, also Southeast Asia. So that's really nothing new. But I think we've seen a drive again, coming out of London to re-engage east of Suez. So this is definitely a policy issue that, that they are moving forwards on. But in terms of areas that they can engage in, I mean, it's really wide ranging from traditional to non-traditional security goods. And here, you know, again, we're talking about how can they help coastal states with maritime law enforcement issues? How can you help in counterterrorism training? How can you work with countries on ocean government? So it's really, I think there's quite a wide role. And I think countries in the region recognize that the UK does have a role to play here. Are there any specific negative, potential negative inflection points that you're worried about going forward in the region? I would have to point to the current one, which seems to be the entire debate around Brexit, which I think will really shape UK policy. And of course, we're at a critical time here. But I think this this is obviously something that, depending how it goes, will limit or create the space for the UK to, to engage further in this region. And again, that can be from very, you know, extensive through a stronger defense attaché network, or it can be through greater diplomatic outreach, or it can be on power projection, on really military exercises, these types of engagements. Within the Indo-Pacific, do you have any specific concerns where things might go terribly wrong? Terribly wrong. That's an interesting question. I think the environment obviously can go very terribly wrong. And when countries are concerned about their natural resources, particularly those around protein, for example, then you get into a situation that can become very quickly a situation that can go very wrong. And I think that's an area that with further engagement from the international community, from the UK, you can try and work with countries in the region to help them in this process, to make sure that food security is taken care of and addressed properly um, through ocean governance, for example, and working with them on climate change mitigation. So these are areas that I think pose a real challenge, but also are areas where the UK can engage. So building on that, are there any positive inflection points? So something that if you saw as a headline, you would go, oh, that's great news. I think that if Let me have a very good think about this for a second, because being in the business of defense and security, we tend to sometimes look at the challenges as opposed to the opportunities. I think that if we see a greater move towards not necessarily reinventing the wheel on regional security architecture, but looking at ways in which the region is including extra regional powers, for example, European powers, I think then that becomes a positive inflection point where we can work more in a structured way, more with countries in the region to help work on some of these challenges. So yes, that's, of course, a difficult one to solve or a difficult one to anticipate because that's not an easy thing to do. But that would be, I think, a positive positive move forwards. And that was the strategic perspective of the Indo-Pacific from London. Next, we'll have the strategic perspective of the Indo-Pacific from Washington. I'm Cleo Pascal. Thanks for listening.